Hello, this is Alex Granados, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you're listening to Ed Talk. Today I'm talking with Lance Fuzzarelli, Professor of Leadership and Policy at the School of Education at NC State. We're going to be talking a little bit about technology and uh, how it can be integrated into the classroom and the, uh, the pitfalls and opportunities therein. Lance, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Alex. Um, so, you know, technology is becoming a big topic in education today. Um, you know, the state is trying to implement a digital learning plan uh, kind of statewide in the schools and the public schools in North Carolina. When we think about technology, how do you think we should be thinking about it in terms of education? I think you want to work backwards and think about what are our, what's the end result? Where do we want to be and what do we want to be able to do? What do we want our students to know and be able to do and how do we want them to experience it? And from there you sort of work backwards to, okay, if this is where we want to end up, how do we use technology to get there? And I think the challenge with technology is, is it's, 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 it's ever evolving at such a rapid pace that it's difficult, I think, for a lot of people, policymakers, um, legislators, principals, teachers, to keep up with the pace. Uh, the kids are the ones that are keeping up with the pace. They're the ones that tend to be on the forefront of it. Um, but I think it's about trying to figure out how do we use this in a way that, that creates a real value add to help us create learners, um, educated students for the next, the next decade, the next century. In schools across the state, we see, you know, individual districts or individual schools implementing one-to-one uh, -one device initiatives, mm -hmm. basically where every student gets a digital device that they can use in the classroom. Are we learning lessons from the implementation of these programs? We are. Um, the, the early findings uh, suggest that they're effective. Um, I think it's a question of again of, of what do you want to use it for right giving every kid a laptop doesn't necessarily change anything if it doesn't change how school leaders lead the school how they provide leadership in terms of, of technology integration if it doesn't change how teachers actually teach or the types of things they do um, so what we need to do is move it from oh this is kind of interesting and supplemental to making it a more integrated part of of the curriculum and so I think this is a good start and I think if we can stay up to date with all the changes that are going on um, with technology then I think there's a real chance to really improve teaching and learning in in ways that that we hadn't before so for instance um, you know they, they talk a lot about change in education and how it you know it's sort of superficial well you know, TV, radio, film, that was all going to change how students learn. Okay. Even with the, when computers came out, they made a big deal about how this was going to, you know, really change education, uh, smart boards and everything like that. Um, a lot of times that's sort of been used as just, uh, you know, instead <laughs> we're going to use a smart board instead of a chalkboard. Well, okay, but that's still the teacher disseminating information to the students, the students sitting, taking that information. Now they might not be sitting in rows like you might see in a, in a painting, but they might be sitting at desk, but in some ways they're still getting it from the teacher. Uh, I think with the newer technologies, it's much more interactive. And so 
Um, the students are able to take more ownership of their learning. They're able to, um, the teacher can move from sort of being a sage on the stage to being more of a facilitator. It creates challenges for teaching because that's a different way to teach. Um, but I think it provides some opportunities, uh, both for students and for the teachers themselves. And we're sitting in a school of education whose job it is uh, partly to train teachers to go into classrooms and do these sort of things. So how is uh, you know, digital technology changing the way teachers need to be trained? I think you, I think in terms of teacher preparation, you have faculty now, you have colleges who are hiring faculty who specialize in this um, and who integrate it into how they believe teachers um, need to be trained. And so I think there's been a change in that um, in terms of who faculty hire and, and what they're looking for, in uh, who colleges hire to try and um, improve that to prepare teachers to be digital learners. I know North Carolina has taken the lead in terms of, of creating state standards for, for digital learning technology. Um, we've adjusted our preparation program and how we prepare school leaders to incorporate <clears throat> digital learning or leadership for digital learning into our into our program uh, because at the school level you know it's great to have all this stuff but unless it's integrated and unless there's a plan and unless there's leadership it's just stuff you know it's just an extra resource and so what I think the effective schools do and effective teachers and principals do is they move it from being just an add-on to really taking advantage of it and integrating it. And so there are different things that leaders need to do and teachers need to do um, to have a true, to truly integrate technology into schools. And uh, I was attracted to come here and talk to you because I read a piece that you wrote about technology and in, in, in education and the pitfalls and opportunities, and I'm sure we've touched on some of that already, but can you tell me about why you wrote that piece and, and what you were trying to say in it? Sure. I, I'd done some research on virtual schools, fully online schools, um, and sort of thinking about sort of the, the, just the changing nature of schooling from going from historically from the little one-room schoolhouse to you know what we have now and what we have now is a very diversified educational system you have a, a vibrant and expanding charter sector uh, in North Carolina and nationwide uh, you have the rise of, of virtual schools uh, which are on increase homeschooling is on on the rise and and I think I think virtual schooling has and technology has an, a significant have significant implications for homeschooling and so you know, if you just sort of think about, well, what's a school? You know, what, 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 does it, what does it mean to go to school? Well, what it meant to go to school when I was in school um, in the 70s is different than what it means for children to go to school now. Um, so I think the, the technology itself is, has really broadened um, or widened access for a lot of people and I think it's fundamentally it can fundamentally change schooling in a sense that I find homeschooling interesting as a movement well with with these virtual schools it really blurs a lot of the lines between you know traditional public schools 
charter schools, which might be public, might not be, depending upon the state you're in, private and parochial schools, homeschooling, virtual schooling. I think those, those well-defined lines are getting significantly blurred. Um, a good example would be, um, according to the U.S. Department of Education, more than half of students in traditional public schools will at some point take at least one um, course uh, or have at least one experience um, in a, an online format while they're in a traditional public school. And when you think about how large our, our school system is, how many ch how children we have in the United States, having more than half of them have at least one exposure to that is fairly significant, I think. Well, it's interesting, right, because I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this all kind of started at the, at the college level, because when mm -hmm. I was a student in the early 2000s at UNC, you know, it, it wasn't uncommon for you to take maybe one of your classes as a virtual class, but it was still kind of a novelty, and I feel like that's become more and more common mm -hmm. at the college level. And it seems like that's now filtering down to the K through 12 level. Mm -hmm. It has. Uh, you know, it's interesting because we have, I mean, school, they're moving in now. Uh, this is moving day, I think it was yesterday, this week. Um, we have students that are going to be in dorms, undergraduates, that will take entire classes in their dorm room. You know, even though they're on a college campus, they're not home living with their parents, they're here. And so they will come to some classes or face-to-face -face with their faculty or their professors but other ones they, they can take fully online and it creates interesting interesting challenges because it, it, it for a number of reasons one in, in higher ed you know funding because typically since we're a land-grant institution um, if we deliver services off campus their tuition is cheaper usually by almost 25 28 percent cheaper um, well, if it's, and that's considered distance education. Well, would it still be considered distance education if they're taking an online class that's essentially on campus? But it's not really on campus because it's online. And so in higher ed, I've noticed it's, it's created a lot of interesting discussions and a lot of kind of fundamental rethinking about, okay, so is this distance education? Is it not distance education? How do we fund it? Um, how do we know that, you know, the students are benefiting from it? So in higher ed, it's created a lot of conversations. Um, I think the same thing is true in, in K-12 education. I mean, one of the, one of the big controversies now with, with virtual schools, um, because as you know, North Carolina has two virtual, fully online virtual schools that are operated um, by for-profit companies, mm -hmm. and, and the performance not just with those two, but with nationally on, on fully online schools um, has been fairly dismal. The Walton Foundation, um, who's a proponent of it, commissioned three studies um, last year, and one of them by Rand, and found that the, the fully online schools are not doing well. Um, re the results in reading and math are actually quite dismal. And most of the, about three quarters of the full-time of the students enrolled in uh, fully online virtual schools, um, education management organizations, for-profit companies, uh, enroll about three quarters of those students. And so uh, it has created some interesting market dynamics and I think opportunities 
but for me, the fundamental question, is, there are two fundamental questions. One of them is, okay, so how do we, how do we regulate this? Or how do we provide at least a minimal amount of oversight to make sure that, that the public money is being well spent on this? Um, I don't think most people care the delivery mechanism, whether it's you know traditional public schools, private parochial schools, virtual schools. I think I think parents want the best education they can for their children. I think policymakers want to create as many opportunities as possible and create the best educational system they can at a at a reasonable cost. And so, uh, to me, uh, one of the big questions is you know. Can we use this to provide better education um, at a lower cost? If, if you were just going to look at it from a cost-benefit analysis, um, but then also beyond that, how is it impacting students, and, and not just academically but socially in a variety of different ways? So it, it, it's an interesting question. We, we also have the North Carolina virtual public school, yep. which is uh, the more traditional version of a virtual online school. Um, it, it's when we talk about the the virtual charter schools, mm -hmm. um, it, it seems to me, and it sounds like maybe there's two different discussions to have there because you know they're, they're relatively new, and, and as you said, they're not doing that well, and and they also prior to some uh, change in legislation had. Um, fairly uh, uh, difficult withdrawal rates from students. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like a lot of people um, look at the virtual charter schools and, and they think of these problems as problems with the charter model. Um, so it seems like there's two different ways you can look at it. You can look at it as, uh, you know, is this a problem because it's operated by for-profit companies or is this a problem because it's an entirely new form of education mm -hmm. that's all online? Um, I'm curious your thoughts about that. Those are interesting questions, and I actually think it's a combination of, of both. Um, you know, I, I think the way to think about this is, you know, what does it mean to go to school? Would would on uh, online education can help a, a, a lot of students, and some students have learning styles where they're just they they benefit from that. Um, I was reading an article the other day that that basically just told the short story of, of two students in different states that had attended fully online high schools. And they talked about what they liked about it and what, what they didn't like about it. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things to think about is it's not for everyone. And um, so there may be students that um, can benefit from that. Um, but there also are other students that, that probably won't benefit from that. The people that students that tend to benefit most in those types of environments are students that are self-directed, they're highly motivated, they have enough parental support to kind of ensure that they're doing school when they're doing school. Um, it does al it allows them to move at their own pace. Um, but, you know, one of the drawbacks, and I think this will gradually perhaps be fixed, uh, is you know, if you go to school and you have a question, you ask the teacher right then. Well, if you're in a fully online school, you know, what if you're not doing it when the teacher is online? 
right? Uh, because the idea is it's self-paced. Well, so if you have questions, or you get stuck on specific things. Does the platform allow you to ask an expert, ask a teacher or a group of experts, uh, or somebody the question when you're stuck on a particular problem right then and there? And um, I think the early versions of some of these were you would email the question to the teacher. When they were on, they would answer it and send it back. Well, that's not that's not helpful uh, because there's a delay. Now I think they're get, getting much better in terms of being able to instantly uh, text message or you know video chat with tutors. Um, but I think a lot of these things, the the key question, one of the key questions is, you know, we we need to put standards and, and practices in place to ensure that um, these are are that the students are getting exposed to a rigorous and, and thorough um, curriculum and that um, the standards for uh, the teachers or the tutors or things like that um, are, are what we would expect and what we would want for our kids. Um, because it does raise a lot of issues. I mean, how do you know in a virtual school whether the student is enrolled or not? That's a huge controversy now in North Carolina with the dropout rates because they do have higher dropout rates. Um, so what constitutes the student being enrolled? You know, how often do they have to participate? When do they, you know, in a, in a public school, if, if they're not there, you know they're not there. Well, if, what if you don't have a structure? You know, how do you know that they're there? And how often would they have to be there to constitute that? So it, it raises issues of, of um, how do we effectively or accurately calculate attendance, dropouts, funding, um, which is an issue. Um, most uh, you know, school districts get a, a portion of their money from the state, but they also get uh, a portion from local tax revenue, property tax as well. Um, there's differential spending throughout the state, depending upon where you live, in terms of pre-pupil spending. Well, so we create a charter school or virtual school, fully online school, that can theoretically draw students from anywhere in the state. So how do you calculate or what do you determine to be the pre-pupil spending? Mm. You know, because if it's in, if it's, if the school is located uh, in Charlotte, it may have a much higher per-pupil spending than if it's located in Franklin County, for instance. And so, but it might draw students from Franklin County and from Charlotte and from Boone and, you know, from Wilmington. So I think thinking about from a policy perspective, how do you, how do you provide accountability, funding, um, some level of oversight, uh, provide, put some safeguards in place for a school that essentially is completely without walls. And so I think there are a lot of challenges from that perspective for policymakers um, uh, and that they're, we're just kind of in the initial stages of grappling with um, because I think it's a mistake to just kind of assume, well, technology is good and it'll be fine. Um, it could be fine. It could be better. Uh, we just have to be careful not to make it worse. Well, it, it seems like when you're talking about a virtual school 
It seems like the state is embarking on the first attempt to truly transform uh, the structure of education since kind of the modern mm-hmm. you know, school classroom structure was built. I mean, we're moving out of that and moving into something new. And when you talk about uh, the virtual charter schools, at least, they've only been in existence for a few short years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, it seems like you would expect some uh, you know, challenges and, and big learning curve mm-hmm. from that, especially when it's a learning curve to somewhere where you don't know where you're, right. where you're going to end. That's right? right. So I think, um, you know, one of the things to think about, for instance, is to date the, the overall performance of fully online virtual schools has, as, as the research seems to suggest so far, been fairly dismal. Um, if we took all of the students enrolled in fully online schools in the United States and created them, put them into one school district, they would be the ninth largest school district in the country. They would also be one of the worst performing school districts in the country. So then the question becomes, is this an effective way to use taxpayer money? Um, and we're not going to, we're not going to undo this, right? This isn't going to suddenly go away. Charters aren't going to go away. Homeschooling is not going to go away. Virtual schooling is not going to go away. It'll it'll continue to kind of change. So I think it's it's not a question of well this is bad we need to do away with it. It's how do we improve it, right? How do we make it better? And um, you know you mentioned um, the um, North Carolina virtual academy, uh, uh, virtual public school, mm-hmm. um, which is support you know it's essentially it's the districts pay by how much it's how often their students use it right um it's almost like a cafeteria well that's that's fabulous and can be very cost effective and it's generally has shown pretty good results because a lot of students in north carolina attend rural schools you know you you don't think of it if you're in raleigh or in charlotte uh or in greensboro but there are a lot of very small districts in north carolina and they don't have always have the resources to provide uh, advanced and AP courses or IB courses in all these different areas. Well, if you're a small district, you can't afford that, but your students want, need it because they want to go in for advanced degrees. Then something like um, North Carolina's virtual public school can be very effective because then the students can get that. The district doesn't have to provide it, but it is overseen by the state they have certified teachers they they have a number of different requirements um, and so I think that technology has provided access to provide the students with more access than we could have possibly dreamed because uh, there are differences I mean North Carolina does have a number of rural states I was in Montana a couple months ago and I thought I knew rural till I went to Montana, and you know those districts are really, really small, really small, and you wouldn't be able to get that those types of, of um, teachers who have those very narrow specializations um, that students might. So I, I think in terms of opportunities for uh, rural areas, the, the, some of these changes in technology can be very impactful and can really enhance student learning. And so where do you see this all going? Is, is uh, Are schools of the future going to look radically different than how we picture schools now? I think they could. 
um, we we have such a large system that I, I don't I'm not quite ready to see a point where everybody's getting personalized learning because um, there has to be some sort of organization and structure to it. Um, but that said, you know, um, if you're look you're looking at um, technology now that is much more interactive, right? So, um, well, you know, we're getting away from textbooks to these ebooks, and these ebooks are cheaper. They're more up to date. They are interactive. They have a number of resources. Um, I think it's changed how we can access information. Um, I know it's changed how I do my faculty work because I never have to go to a library anymore. Um, I have access to more sources than I could possibly imagine and keep up with. And that's one of those challenges, I think, both for students and for teachers is if you have access to almost everything, how do you sift through that and, and make sense of it and use it in a way that's productive? Um, but I think you know it, it's increased collaboration. Uh, students and teachers can collaborate beyond the classroom walls. Um, they can be looking at the same document in totally different places and be working on it and see who's making what changes and things like that. Um, I know that Silicon Valley is big into personalized learning. Um, there are a number of, of computer-assisted um, software um, programs that, for instance, uh, think, th think Through Math is one of them that, that I've had a little bit of exposure to, um, which is really, you know, it's, it, it will, a student takes a pretest. If they do well on the pretest, then it skips to the next lesson in math, so because math is integrated and it's step-by-step. If the student doesn't do well, then the computer basically says, or thinks, so to speak, okay, here's what the student needs to work on. And the student will work on that, and then once they've mastered it, it'll go up to the next level. If there are particular concepts that the student is still isn't getting, it'll drop down and drill to that. And then the teacher can get weekly reports about, here's, here are all my students, here's what they've mastered, here are the areas that they need work on, and you can use that to drive instruction. Because ultimately, I mean, technology is great, but if you don't use it to actually improve teaching and learning, then it's just, it's just extra. Mm -hmm. And so I think the key is to have um, leaders, school leaders, who understand that, that it's just a tool, but an important tool, and that, that model it, that allow teachers time to work in teams and use it, and actually get real-time data and use that to improve instruction now as opposed to taking a standardized test at the end of the year and then looking back and saying with autopsy data, okay, here's where our students did well and here's where they didn't do well and so I'll try and change next year with a new group of students assuming that they probably will have some of the same issues, mm -hmm. which may or may not be true. With these platforms now, teachers can get that instantly. And so I think it, create, it can create more work for teachers, um, at least in the sense that they, it can require them to make more real-time adjustments. But I think that's much more personalized. I mean, I think you, what you want is you want the students to learn and you want to be able to help them and, and quickly diagnose where they're not, where they're having problems. And I think these platforms allow us to do that. And I think they're getting better all the time. So it, it's, 
it is useful, but it's but it the important thing too is teachers need to be able to understand that it can be used to drive instruction. It's not just sort of like extra work, mm -hmm. right? So um, a teacher saying, well, you have to use this for 30 minutes a night, that's not an outcome goal. That's just a, a process, right? So thinking about, um, you know, how are we gonna have the students work on this and then how are we gonna use that to inform and improve our instruction? That's where you get technology integration uh, in a much more effective in a, uh, way. And I, and I think there are, you know, you asked the big question about what's it gonna look like, you know, in the next two weeks you're seeing all these kids get out of school buses and they're, you know, first graders and second graders and they're 60 pounds and they have 40 pounds of, of books and school supplies and it's, you know, you just wonder how they even can walk, mm -hmm. right? Well, you know, that's, as textbooks are starting to become extinct uh, fairly gradually, maybe not so gradually, um, I think you're going to see these big backpacks start to go away as well um, because a textbook is not interactive. An e-book is. And so there's even in higher ed, there's a lot of pressure to do um, not only traditional textbooks, but e-books that have all these supplemental websites and everything else because that's what students will use. Mm -hmm. And so it's much more useful. It's more cost effective. Um, so I think you're going to, I think you'll see that change. Um, I also think that you'll probably, um, in addition to the, the, the personalized learning, I think as we get better with virtual reality, um, you know, surgeons are starting to use that uh, where they can take MRIs and look at the 3D imaging and, and create um, images where they can more target and pinpoint um, what's wrong with patients and, and how to best help them. Um, I think you know you see medical schools starting to use this more and more. Um, I could easily see that in a K-12 environment, for instance, career and technical education. You know, um, instead of learning, instead of taking a, a broken transmission in 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 shop class and learning how to repair it manually, well, what if you created a virtual transmission, and and a student could literally go through and fix it virtually. And I don't think, I mean, I think in some ways we're there already. It's gonna get better all the time. And so I think there are some real implications for thinking about um, improving how we do things and, and how students learn, because it is much more interactive. And the students, it's, it's harder to get their attention. So you have to go beyond sit and get, you need to integrate it. And I think there are ways that you can probably do that that would be very, educational for the students, not just the stereotype, well, they're playing games. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not really, they might be, but, but if it's done well, they're not playing games, or if they are playing games, it's for specific educational purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I could see it in a variety of different, not just science and, and biology and anatomy, but in career and technical education, I could see virtual reality doing a number of, making a number of significant improvements. And it's cheaper. Uh, at least for a school district, I mean, I, you know, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to buy these cars that have bad transmissions and stuff. You can, right. you can do it there, and that's pretty interesting when you think about it. Well, Lance, thanks so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Alex, for inviting me.
We've been talking with Lance Buzzarelli, Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy at the NC State College of Education, and I'm Alex Granados, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you've been listening to Ed Talk. Thanks for listening.